You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today Tom is sitting down with Dr. Trish Scanlon, CEO and founder of Soapbox Labs. Dr. Scanlon is one of the foremost leaders on voice technologies, especially with regards to children's voices. She has over 20 years of experience working in speech recognition technology, including at Bell Labs and IBM. In 2018, Dr. Scanlon was named one of Forbes' top 50 women in tech. In 2020, she was ranked six of 17 global visionaries in voice by industry-leading publications voicebot.ai. Let's listen in as Tom and Dr. Scanlon discuss the possibilities of voice technologies, why children pose a unique challenge in the field, and how tech can be keeping ethics and well-being at the center. Dr. Scanlon, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, it's great to join you. I wish we were doing this live in uh, in Dublin. Um, I'm looking forward to visiting next year. Yeah, that'd be nice, right? Yeah, we'll welcome you. We'll welcome you with open arms. Trish, um, you, you did a, a degree in electrical engineering. Why and how did you get interested in uh, voice technology? Why did you do a PhD in, in uh, voice tech? Yeah, I was, um, I think I became an electronic engineer because I had this idea I'd be an inventor. And then I did the course and it was a lot more, let's say just a little more boring than I expected. And I was like, oh, okay, this is not what I signed. And this is not what I thought I signed up for. So I worked for a year or two and I, I kind of interested, but you know, I'd get bored quickly about what I was doing. So I had this idea, oh no, if I want to be an inventor, I got to do a PhD. So, um, you know, that kind of creative kind of fun aspect of looking at technology and the potential. I was looking at different types of PhDs, different areas you can do PhDs in. And I really liked the idea of, this was back in 2000. So I'd worked for a few years after college. And I kind of had the ideas I wanted to work with something that really touched humans, you know, that, that human interaction. So I, I was really kind of my eyes lit up when I, the idea of doing speech recognition that I could, you know, play with audio, listen, see if the computer could understand it. Part of my PhD was actually on lip reading as well. So could you mm. augment the performance of speech recognition through getting the computer to lip read? Um, so yeah, it was, it, it was a great project. Were you, were you able to find uh, advisors that were helpful 20 years ago? Yeah, I mean, you know, speech recognition has been around 50 years, right? So um, uh, I, I, after my PhD, I went to work in Bell Labs, but Bell Labs are one of the, um, you know, back in, there's, there's papers from the 70s and 80s where the, the aim was to understand digits, like just single digits, you know? So there's a lot of people and a lot of big research, uh, even so in 2000, 2000 was an interesting time, right? So IBM had Via Voice. Um, you know, there was a lot of AT&T, Bell Labs. Everybody was doing a little bit of dabbling in it. And then around the mid-2000s, Nuance came in and kind of took over. There was a lot of speech recognition companies actually in the northeast of the U.S. And they kind of came in and just took over. And every actually kind of gave up on it a little bit. Um, so it was a very active area when I started my Ph.D., um, it kind of tailed off a bit because people were, got a little frustrated with the accuracy. Uh, nuance kind of plowed forward um, and kind of led the area. And then there was a resurgence again in about 2011, 2012, 2013, where deep learning kind of helped boost the area and boost the accuracy. But yeah, there was a lull for about like a decade. Like. Uh, I'm curious, I guess I, uh, we can dive into this later, but I'm, um, which uh, machine learning uh, tools are most useful in speech recognition? Is it mostly uh, natural language processing? 
Yeah, there's different sides of it. So natural, people think about it. So we use like acoustic models. So, and then language models and natural language processing is all part of that, right? So when it's deep learning, so machine learning goes back to, I know people might remember talk of hidden Markov models, but then we progress to neural nets and now deep neural nets and all different aspects of the speech um, kind of cycle will have a neural net here, a deep neural net here and a deep neural net here. So the technology, uh, first of all, you have to understand acoustically what's been said. And then the system kind of similar to how kids learn how to read, right? So, you know, kid learns k, at, is cat. I was blown away when I saw that for the first time because that's actually how we teach computers to do speech recognition. Mm. You know, I, you know I, when I had my daughter, I was like, oh, that's very cool. Like we teach kids like we teach computers. That's kind of, kind of interesting. So, you know, the technology is first to understand the k sound and then the NLP and the language, language modeling is the bit that strings it together into a word and then natural language processing kind of figures out, well, if you said this word, it's more likely a verb followed. So I think this is what you said. And so it's a kind of trying to get a, um, an estimation or a prediction of what might have been said based on what the computer knows about general language. So there's lots of cool you know, aspects of it that, that make up the accuracy. Speaking of kids, what, when did you figure out that, um, that speech recognition was particularly challenging for children? Um, it was actually when my, my daughter was, uh, God, she was not even four. Um, and I was, you know, it was around the time, right? So that was about 2012, 2013, when I was, um, the apps, remember people were making loads of money out of apps. There was a huge amount of money being put into these personal learning apps and stuff like that, that I was actually giving them to my daughter for that early stage of reading. Um, you know, I was giving her the iPad, but making sure the apps were educational. Um, so what I was trying to do is make sure that she was learning something while she was on the device. I think we're still all doing that today. But what I noticed was um, a lot of the reading apps, especially that early stage of reading, phonological awareness, phonemes, blending, decoding, all that was just all very passive. And the only way they had to assess her was to give her multiple choice, right? So if they played the K sound, they would just show her a C and maybe a P or something, and she just had to press one. And if she got it wrong, whatever the gamified environment was, a little monster or something like that, she just do the opposite. Well, that was wrong last time. Know, it must be this one. And I eventually started realizing she was just hacking, gaming the system and not actually learning. Because when I try and quiz her on what she'd learned, she wouldn't know. So as a speech recognition engineer at that point, and I'd spend you know, most of my career doing it, I was like, this really needs speech recognition to listen and, and know if the child has actually retained the information and can pronounce it correctly. So I kind of started to dig around and saying, well, why is that not in these personal learning apps and journeys? And, um, and what I found out was it's just an extremely hard problem to be able to understand a child's voice. And what I realized then was that my whole career, I'd been working in speech recognition for adults. And, and I think and at the whole industry, we were all just using adult data, modeling, getting it to work for adults, tuning it to adult voices. And then going, yeah, we did a job done. We got great accuracy without actually thinking how different kids are. And people know and did know that accents are a problem. And people were kind of maybe a little more focused on that. And then they just thought, well, kids are just like another accent. Right. So we'll just throw a little data at it and we'll fix it. You know, Scottish accents a little hard. We'll throw data at it and we'll fix it. But kids, what I discovered from diving into this 
is that they're fundamentally different in their physical voices, their vocal mm. tracks are shorter, thinner, smaller, but their behaviors and their language is vastly different. And that all those together really mess with a system that has been designed and built for adults. And that's really where that aspect for me jumped out, you know. So this may be a good place to ask you about the origin story of Soapbox Labs. You're your company uh, focused on voice recognition for kids. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I so what I was doing is first of all just observing my daughter using it, and then kind of having this idea. Well, you know, if the problem that it doesn't exist out there for, um, and it wasn't like people haven't tried. I think that's really important. Like, you know, if you were to look at the research. There was a research paper written in the 80s about how speech recognition can be used to help kids in, for their literacy and their language learning. And one of the things was, but the accuracy is just not there, you know. And then there was an amazing uh, paper written by the Wang Cooney Institute um, back in 2011. Marilyn Yeager Adams wrote this great paper um, again on how literacy could in the classroom could be re teachers could be helped greatly by being able to use speech recognition to help kids progress and, and be assessed and all this. Wouldn't it be a great tool, but here's all the reasons why it won't work. Um, so I think it was all those experiences. I was looking at the research after, you know, I spend most of my time as a researcher, realizing there's a gap. Um, I'd also worked for IBM Research and, I, you know, at Bell Labs, part of Alcatel-Lucent. So I kind of knew the big tech companies tend to just focus on the big problem. They, they look at the whole population and they, they see kids as a subset and go, okay, we'll solve this one and then we'll do a side of the kids. Um, and I just knew for education, that would never be good enough because the accuracy and the, you just need laser focus to get the accuracy, the language, the behaviors. And that was really the origin of Soapbox Labs. Let's, let's try and solve this for young children because they're, they're much harder than older kids. Let's do all the kids. Let's do it for education and let's have it work in the real world and let's have it work without headset mics. And it's okay if the TV's on in the background or somebody else is talking. Let's, let's, work, let's make a modern contemporary solution for children and have it at the same accuracy as adults experience. And that was really our, our, our mission when we set out. So what, what business are you in? What, what kind of products and services do you have now? Are you, are you sort of behind the scenes and an Intel inside for other products? Or, uh, yeah. or how would, uh, how would so kids bad. experience Soapbox today? Yeah, we're very much the, the Soapbox inside <laughs> aspect. Is, you know, we decided in the early years, we could have gone and brought product out or the platform or the learning journey and dynamically, but we decided to stick to what we are good at, which is this voice technology, the AI and the delivery mechanisms and infrastructure to support our clients. And then to license our technology to ed tech companies, initially ed tech companies who build literacy, language learning, speech therapy, dyslexia screeners, all these fantastic different use cases. And the wonderful thing is like, we're not the pedagogy experts when it comes to this, we, we enable them. We listen to them, we work with them, we enable them, we um, you know, give them the solutions that they need and let them voice enable because they have some you know, beautifully creative products. They have these assessment tools that are already in the market and we're just helping them. And what it means is that we can touch so many more areas 
Um, you know, we like to stay in the background so children can, you know, download apps with our technology and it to do language learning out in Asia. There's a huge um, a cohort of children using it to learn English right down to age two and three, right up. Um, in the US, Amplifier is using it to, um, you know, do literacy assessments to be able to level readers. Um, you know, we have people in the toy industry uh, incorporating it into, you know, fun play and learning experiences. Um, and then a whole host of, of, of practice screening, all these different, um, all the, we're enabling all these technologies out there at the moment, which is great. In order to fix the deep inequities in our school systems, we need to build with a new blueprint, a blueprint that's focused on how children really learn and develop. The team at Turnaround for Children has created the Toolbox, a new online hub created by educators for educators that is backed in science, research, and passion. With this tool, you'll be able to create a supportive environment, cultivate developmental relationships, and build students' knowledge, skills, and mindsets, all of which is centered around a whole child purpose. Together, we can design our schools to be places where all students can thrive. Visit turnaroundus.org slash toolbox to get started. So I want to um, dig in and, and look at a couple of the different uh, voice applications. So you mentioned speech therapy. Um, that online speech therapy has been around for seven or eight years um, with some success. You mentioned toys, but let's stick with the classroom. What, what, what are the current and sort of planned applications of voice recognition or more broadly uh, voice tech in, in learning and development? Yeah, absolutely. So if you kind of think about the very young, you know, when it's speech therapy, often it's um, the application is to help kids do particular pronunciations and then give feedback. So it's in two okay. ways. Like we, we don't dictate really how it's delivered, but it can be delivered in two ways. One is an immediate feedback to the child about how well they pronounce the sound or the word or the syllable. But another way, and some clients would prefer to do it this way, would be just to feedback to the speech therapist or the parent. So it would depend yeah. on, is it a child-facing product or is it an assessment product or what, um, you know, what is it you're trying to do? Another one would be on dyslexia screeners. So being able to do rapid naming, be able to do different types of pronunciation, to be able to, what I love about that is to be able to do dyslexia screen, have a really strong indicator of whether a child is susceptible to, you know, has, has the indicators for dyslexia before they can ever even read. You know, so it's not that, you know, it takes four times longer to intervene with a child who's eight than it is with a four or five-year-old. And isn't it fantastic that that child doesn't have to go four years not knowing that they have dyslexia or the parents don't or the teachers don't. And you can catch them early and then help in interview. Yeah. Like, that's a fabulous use case. Like, you know, other ones would be on early literacy. So phonemic awareness, phonological awareness, uh, being able to, um, you know, even read, uh, you know, do vocabulary learning without any words on the page. So we always think about literacy, teaching kids once there's a word on the page or a paragraph or a sentence, but you can actually go back further than that and play word games with kids, you know, say what's spin without this pin, you know, and things like that, that they can actually learn those yeah. really early stages of, of um, you know, without ever. And then you can progress to the, the phonics and the blending, the decoding and things like that, which is. Liz, um, I want to dive 
I want to dive into accents and kids for a minute. You you have a lovely uh, Dublin accent. Yeah. Last last night I just finished watching um, Hinterland, which is a cop show in Wales. And last week before that, I watched uh, Broadchurch, which was um, South England. And, you know, so from Dublin to Wales to South England, pretty significant um, accent differences. What what implications does this have for speech um, technology for children? How do you deal with those accent differences? Yeah, I, 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 it's a really, really critical part of what we do. We, we've collected data from over 190 countries, right? So English data from Adler, so accents from kids in different environments, but different pronunciations, different dialects as well. Um, it's really important that what happens in the classroom isn't that there's a certain small subset that are getting penalized for their accents, right? Mm. It's equally important that we don't just drop the bar. Right. So if you're going to have voice technologies, two things that can happen. You can end up with a false positive or a false negative. And if you end up with either of those, so false positive is when you're telling a kid they're right when they're wrong, right? Mm. Now, what does that do, right? So that's just bad education. You're reinforcing errors, right? Telling a kid they're wrong when they're right is really damaging, damaging in, in different ways. Like, so we have to be super careful we're not doing those things. So what often happens is in order to co cope with languages, people decide to drop the bar and they just pass everything because they, you know, they know their system isn't working well with a certain course or accent. That's really dangerous, right? So that's not educational. And what you're going to end up doing is actually causing more problems. So we have to be really mindful that the technology that's put into the classrooms is, is taking account of false positive, false negatives, and not just on a whole, right? Not just across a whole classroom, um, making sure that there aren't subgroups in the classroom getting penalized, um, you know, but the average is masking out those issues. You know, I mean, we've had some great discussions with people in the US about dialects and bias recently. Um, you know, there's like, you know, over a dozen different dialects in the US of US English, you know, one of the things I think is really important to note as well is that I think there was about six, a study done on a couple of thousand kids across the US and there was about a 16% difference in human disagreement on um, fluency assessments, right, for children. So even as humans, we have bias, um, you know, we won't always agree on it. So it's been really, really careful that we don't allow the AI to exasperate the inequality in classrooms already. So we have to be able to sure if built correctly, AI has the potential to actually build objective, you know, imagine having the exact same assessment across the whole of the US, right? You know, that, that, that there is no biases, there is no ambiguity. Uh, we're not exasperating already ingrained biases in the classroom. And that can be done, but it just has to be done thoughtfully and not just rushing stuff into the classroom without being fully tested. Well, so, I'm, gl I'm glad you mentioned that because I, you know, Trish, um, bias in facial recognition uh, really came to the forefront in 2020 in many cities around the world. And it's sort of easy to understand how um, bias could be built into facial recognition models. But I, I hadn't thought about the ways that bias could be built into voice recognition. But the, the conversation we just had about accents is a great example of ways in which you, you could create these false uh, positives and negatives and, and really uh, damage uh, particular populations. So I, yeah. I appreciate your caution on this front. Yeah, it's, it's super important that we get this right. 
Um, you know, I don't, you know, one of my biggest worries is that we, we you know, people's confidence in, in the good aspects of it, good AI is damaged by, by, you know, a couple of, you know, systems that aren't taking this into account. Like, you know, so we have to be careful. We, we're working with the Florida Center for Reading Research as part of the Reach Every Reader project. Um, and, and one of the things they looked at was um, by, they used our system and was able to look at whether there was any bias across different socioeconomic um, demographics between uh, black kids and Latino and all these different um, and, and they didn't find any bias in the system. And what we are doing is keeping a really close eye on it because when you have AI, you're constantly evolving it. You've got to be damn sure you're not evolving it into something that starts to introduce bias. So it's always been very thoughtful and mindful of the changes we make to a system, the data you add to a system, that we're not going, we're trying to solve problems here. We want to make sure we're not going to add to already hugely the inequality that's already out there like, you know right. that's there's the opportunity here to help teachers in overcrowded classrooms in busy classrooms you know the teachers want more resources the teachers know already that if they could sit down with each child in the classroom for 15 minutes a day could you imagine how their reading would improve but nobody's giving the teachers the resources to do that but maybe there's an opportunity to use ai to help the kids practice help the teachers to flag up to the teachers if a child needs intervention, if they're slipping behind their peers, they have dyslexia, so the teachers are able to do their job properly. And they can do, we can do this at scale and, and objectively. And so there is some great opportunities here um, to use AI for the benefit of the children and the teachers uh, to help them do their job. Uh, and that's are, there, are there other categories of uh, assistive tech that you're excited about ways in which voice technology is going to uh, better serve, create more access for learners with, uh, with differences, voice to text, sex to voice. Yeah, there's huge, there's huge opportunity here. I mean, you often hear um, a lot of kids with disabilities or something like that being left out. So voice technology is fantastic and it's able to, kids can do, you know, older children and adults can do dictation, they can do, you know, open a page, they can, you know, do command and control. And the younger kids have been, have been left out of that equation, um, you know, and they need it just as much, if not more, like, you know, you know, they have limited ability. They can't, you know, press buttons. They can't, you know, to, to use stuff, using their voice for accessibility. It's just such a natural way for children to interact, right? It's, and we kind of, the way I like to think about it as well, and, and for any aspect of the classroom, is that, Voice is an interface technology first. So when I did my PhD back in 2000, we were thinking of it as a, an interface technology. We weren't thinking of it as an assistant. It's kind of a cool use case, but it wasn't the reason we, we all started working on it. I, I like to think about, um, you know, a mouse or a keyboard or a swipe or touch or a button is we've had to invent these interfaces because we the computer couldn't understand us, right? So we've had to find ways to talk to the computer, right? And tell it what to do through all these dials and, and keyboards and stuff. Where with humans, the natural interface is voice. So the more accurate voice gets, the more we can naturally interact with technology. And that's really important for kids, right? So kids, often they're pre-literate, not gonna read a menu system. You know, they don't have the complex thinking to navigate to where they need, but voice can allow them to interact with technology. It can help, you know, particularly in the accessibility, can really help them get to what they need quickly, um, but it needs to be accurate. And to be accurate for the kids' voices is particularly important. 
Trisha, I have a five-year-old granddaughter. It strikes me that she is in the first generation of not just the digital natives, but voice natives. Uh, when when she walks into the kitchen, she often barks a command at her smart speaker, and uh, the kitchen is full of her favorite um, movie soundtrack. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I also gave her one for her bedroom. Was that a good idea? Am I enabling this voice generation? Uh, how, how should we be managing um, the the, the yeah. this generation of voice natives? It, 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 it's a really tricky ground, right? We have to be really conscious of the privacy aspects around it. So, you know, I mean, if you gave your granddaughter an echo and, you know, you want to make sure it's what are the privacy um, rules around that? Did you sign up for a particular, did you give her an adult one and nothing different's been done? The issue is around transparency, right? So you can give permission for your child, the grandchild to use that or the parents can, but does that mean the child's data has just been used like an adult's? It's just been treated like an adult's. I mean, what I'd love to see in the industry is more transparency about what happens to that data. Um, is it going to be used for marketing, product placement? Is it possible to have that data deleted? And, you know, without you having to expressly go in and ask for it to be deleted, do you have control on it? Is I mean, simple transparency, I think, is key to this industry. Because one of my worries is that we will lose the trust of parents in this whole privacy, um, you know, debacle over the last couple of years. I was always very conscious right from when we founded the company as a parent and someone in AI, how important data is but equally how problematic it is if, if, if it's not treated correctly. So what we were very conscious to do is to do that privacy by design from, from 2013, even before. So it was like the wild west of data gathering at the time. But we, you know, I worked with Prevo, a safe harbor in the US from 2013 to ensure that everything we did would be compliant and respectful of children's digital rights. And we've continued that to this day. So when it comes to the smart speakers, I do just... Um, you know, we have them in our house. They're not in the bedroom. You know, um, it, it's kind of like they're fun, but I'm also very mindful of, of you know, do I want a, a digital footprint of my child from the age of eight all the way up to their, uh, an adult? And, and where is it? And who has it? And what, what's been done with it? And I think, you know, a call to the industry, simple transparency, you know, straight up what's, what happens to this data. You know, I, I don't want to have to dig down in five pages of a privacy document to find out what actually happens. Um, I'd like it to be more transparent, and I think all of us would, because there's so much good AI can do and, and helping our kid, the kids' lives and enjoyment that you don't want it to be um, sullied by, um, by, by, by that, you know, secrecy or, or, or privacy concerns. Right. So my... My granddaughter is also the first generation of, of students growing up with sort of ubiquitous AI with machine learning applications in, in every aspect of life and work. Sort of more broadly, how, how do you think about what, what students and teachers should know about uh, machine learning today and how and where should we be introducing that topic in school? Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting one. I've been talking to my kids about it a bit as well because they will see it everywhere. And I think the likes of deep fakes and things like that, that, you know, question everything you see, you know, I mean, it, it, we're, get, we're getting there and it kind of 
spooks me a little bit. Like, you know, that we're talking about videos that are going to surface now, people saying something they never said or doing something they never did. And, you know, being aware of the positives and negatives of AI, uh, because kids are going to start seeing it more and more in their lives. There's some absolutely amazing positives that AI can bring to the world. But just being an awareness to question the origin of things and, and don't believe everything you see, you know, appreciate the value that it can bring to, to our lives. Um, but, you know, you know, it's not a case of you accept everything you see because of what we talked about earlier. You know, if it's not built correctly, um, there's biases, there's problems with it. You know, I mean, if a system tells you you're wrong, you know, you begin to believe that or is it just because, you um, it wasn't coping with your accent or your dialect well. Like, you know, we got to be really careful. And I think when kids understand, um, just like, I mean, I, I'm sure the conversation about data privacy comes up a lot when kids are using social media in, in, in people's houses. Um, I think equally, the next conversation is around AI and, and you know, the systems we use. You're in, uh, in Dublin, which has been a bit of an EdTech hotspot uh, for the last 15 years or so, I think there's at least 120 EdTech startups there. What, what's in the water? Why is it turned <laughs> into a, a world leader in technology? It's really interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, there's a great uh, technology, learning technology research center in Dublin. Um, our CEO, Dr. Mar Martin Farris, was actually the director, and I met him uh, there You know, when I was starting the company, when I, I spun into the university for a while and we incubated the company there. Um, certain aspects of our technology were developed there and spun back out of Trinity College. So the, that has kind of drawn together a lot of people on the ed tech space. So you get a lot of the big multinationals that are playing in that, like Microsoft and a couple of other big companies. Um, and equally, it's then, you know, it inspires startups. Um, in the ed tech space, I mean, you know, it's a huge hub for startups in general, tech startups, but ed tech has really kind of flourished, I think, um, with respect that because there's been a hub um, to kind of help the interactions. Often it's very good if you're a startup to, if you get an introduction to a big multinational that could potentially be a client, you know, I mean, that tends to, to drive or inspire innovation. Um, and I think that's it. And, and to be honest, you know, the government are very supportive here, you know, to get grants to get started, um, you know, at different levels, um, support systems in place for startups. Um, the EU have some very good um, funding grants and startups for deep tech innovations. Um, you know, the Irish government have actually followed the EU in that as well and further innovation grants. So I think, you know, to lead the world and stuff, you need, uh, you know, you need funding that can come traditionally from VCs and, uh, and investors. But equally, in the very early stages, if you're really building deep technology, real innovation, often, you know, it's, you need funding for that early stage before you're, you even have a product. So the Irish government and the EU kind of supporting really early stage pre-seed innovations in deep tech um, kind of has helped seed a lot of this. Trish, you're involved in one of the most rapidly uh, changing and growing uh, segments of technology. I'm curious, how do you keep learning? God, I, I actually really love this area. I, I find it fascinating. So, you know, often, you know, it could be Sunday morning, I'm reading TechCrunch or I'm reading Ed Surge or, you know, I'm just kind of, it's just a curiosity about it. It's a very exciting time. You kind of have the nexus of voice technology, kid tech, ed tech, 
And all three of them are just, you know, you know, catapulted and even more so in the last year, you know, the and the attention is there. You know, people who were never talking about ed tech before are talking about it now. It's really exciting to be there. And then you've got the voice technology space, which has also gotten a huge amount of, um, you know, attention, coverage, interest. People can see now where it's going, where maybe when we were starting out, it was more of a struggle to share the vision of how big voice technology was going to be. Uh, where now you feel like everybody's coming on that journey with us now. You know? We've been talking with Dr. Trish Scanlon from Soapbox Labs. Uh, Trish, thanks for being on the podcast. We appreciate uh, the, the innovation that your company has brought to the ed tech sector. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Tom. That was fun. Thanks so much to Dr. Scanlon for joining us on today's episode. We always love a deep dive on AI, especially when it ties into learning. For more on the subject, check out episode 258 with Flynn Coleman. All right, that's it for today, listeners. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.